Well, guys, it's super good to be back home. It's been six years since I darkened the doorstep of McKinney, Texas, and uh, it looks just a little different in the last uh, last couple of years. Um, but it is uh, just really a special opportunity for my wife, Alyssa, and I to be here with you guys today, um, really back at the church that I still, to this day, consider my home church, um, and just just great to be with you all. Let me uh, get you guys a little bit caught up on what's going on with Alyssa and I nowadays. Uh, we are, we're living in Oklahoma, so right now we live in Shawnee, which is about 45 minutes east of Oklahoma City, uh, but in just about two weeks, we'll be moving to Norman, Oklahoma, uh, just south of OKC. I won't say anything about Boomer Sooner, I know I'm in the wrong state for that, so, so don't worry. Um, but we'll be moving there to plant a church. So we'll be planting Magnified Church, um, which has been just, I've, I'll have to tell you the full story another time because we'd be here all day if I did that and then tried to preach afterwards. But it has just been su- such a whirlwind experience to, to see God calling us to, to go here. We had literally no intentions of doing that. We were uh, attending and serving in a church that we love dearly on staff there as the associate pastor, and we had bought a house and were planning to stay there for five to ten years. And God said, how about you stay there for two years and then uproot and move? And I said, that sounds like a horrible idea, God. Let's try again. (laughs) Um, And uh, ended up obeying and saying yes to the call that God had on our lives. And so now, starting in August, so just in about a month, a little over a month, a little under a month, we're in July now, We'll be going there to start our, uh, we'll start with the community Bible study, just a place for uh, people in our neighborhoods to come together, study the Word of God, um, before we try to launch any sort of worship service. Uh, we've got our eye on maybe a January date for starting that, but leaving that up to God about when He puts the right people in place for us to be able to engage our community in that way. Uh, but in the time in between, we're just going to be striving to engage Norman with the gospel. And one of the big things about why Norman, because this is the first question I always get when we tell people this, is why would you plant a church in Norman? Is, and I get that question for two reasons. One, they say, there's already a hundred churches in Norman. Surely we don't need another church in Norman. And then the other reason is, Norman is a cesspool of human interaction. Why would you plant a church in Norman? And you would think by getting both of those responses that you would find the truth somewhere in the middle. And it's ultimately that, yes, there's a lot of churches in Norman, but it's the second most lost city in Oklahoma, behind Tulsa. So this is a staggering amount of people who are lost in this town, about 80,000 people who don't know Jesus. And despite the amount of churches we have, there's just not enough capacity in those, in those congregations to be able to reach 80,000 people and continue to disciple them. So we just need more churches in Norman. There's a desperate need for Jesus in that community There is a historical element in Norman of church hurt. So you could trace it back if you wanted through the last about 30, 40 years, but there was a lot of people who got hurt in the church. And so they left. And so now they they would identify themselves, as you can see on the screen here, as duns. These are people who used to go to church, but now they call themselves done. I'm done with church. They might even still be a Christian, consider themselves a follower of Christ, me and Jesus got our own thing going on, that sort of an approach, but they are done with the organized church. That has a huge space in my heart 
for, for reaching those people. Because, yes, they got hurt by the church. And the way that they can be healed from that hurt is also by the church. Through God's restorative work through his people in community together. And desperately, I want to reach those people and want us to be a place for them to safely come in, engage in that community, hear the gospel, taught, be side-by-side uh, side with other believers, and serving our community for the sake of the gospel. That is our vision for Magnified Church, is reaching those, those who are done with church and those who would consider themselves nuns. And that's not like Catholic nun. You know, we're, there's, the Catholic population's, I mean, not huge there. We wouldn't, yeah, not that. But as you can see, N-O-N-E-S. So that would be people who have no religious affiliation, those who do not know Jesus and likely have never known Jesus. Those are the two people groups that make up a huge percentage of Norman. And so those are the people that we are really wanting to focus on on reaching there. So I want to, uh, I want to start off today by uh, inviting you guys to participate in planting this church with us through your support in prayer. So if we can, we can throw up on the screen here. Um, this is a QR code. I don't know how many of you guys use QR codes. It was new to me. Um, but if you pull out your phone camera, you can point it at the screen and scan this. And this allows you to get signed up for our email prayer updates. So every week I try to send out an email um, that kind of lets you know how you can specifically be praying for Magnify this week. And if you're not QR code confident like me, Talk to me after service, and I would be happy to add you to that email list. Um, but this is just one of, one of the ways that even from hundreds of miles away, we can stay partnered together for the sake of the gospel in advancing that uh, in the places where it is not, like Norman. So um, if you would, stand that, and I'd highly, highly encourage you to join that. All right, we'll leave that up for just a couple more seconds. But today's, the title for today's message is going to be Scattered Castle, Gathered Kingdom. So if you would, go ahead in your Bible and open to your favorite book, Acts. Um, a word on the street is, we're right at the end of a two and a half year endeavor to get through the book of Acts. So I thought, wouldn't it be great to go back through the whole book of Acts again this morning? <laughs> so we'll start in two and we'll hit the vast majority of Acts. And uh, don't worry, I don't have enough stamina to preach systematically through the whole book. So we'll get you out of here sometime before two o'clock today. But... <laughs> Um, yep, so we are, uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts. So there is this kind of innate wiring in our brains for patterns. Okay, so this is what we teach kids in grade school. This is what we teach them. Even like my wife is a pre-K teacher, all the way when they're four years old, they're starting to learn patterns. And it seems like we have a natural affinity for it. I don't know if it's because... It is comfortable and expected, but you can see how our brains work with this. So you can help me complete the pattern here. We've got blue, red, blue, red, blue, red. Well, close. Blue, yeah, that's, I mean, it's okay. We're, you know, it's early. You know, maybe an extra cup of coffee would have been helpful. Maybe a math one would be better for you guys. So it goes 5, 10, 15, 20. Okay, mathletes, calm down there. Don't go too far. Okay, that's good. That's good. So those were easy for you to anticipate and fill in because you knew what was coming. You identified what the repeating or common theme was in there. But then when we break a pattern, there is something jarring about that. It stands out. So if you look at this sea of dots here, you see blue, red, red, blue, red, red. Raise your hand when you see the one that breaks the pattern. 
Yeah, it took you all of about a half a second to do that. So there's a yellow dot about right there in the middle. This stood out to you because it was so different from all the things around it and what had been established. Or what about this one? This is a, uh, a mother who has two daughters, names them, or has three daughters, names them April, May, and Jennifer. That's right, Jennifer. So, so, <laughs> can you tell I spent too much time with Mark Barrier? Uh, <laughs> so, a break in the pattern stands out. We see that in Scripture as well. Commonly, we see patterns all throughout Scripture that are meant to draw our attention to something or to emphasize something. One, for example, would be uh, in the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, you see this pattern in creation, right? You can even see like specific phrases and words used over and over again, like God said, let there be light, or you know, let there be land, or let there be animal, you know, insert, insert anything there. And then he says that God saw that it was that blank was good. And then there was evening and there was morning, the blank day. You can follow the pattern across the first six days of it systematically hitting all three of those points. Then you get to the seventh day, and there's a break in the pattern. All of a sudden, what we, we don't see God create anything. Instead, he sits there and blesses the day, sets it aside for rest. And most importantly, we don't see, and there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. There's nothing there. What we see instead is we are now living into the perfect creation at this point. We just continue to live in the seventh day at this point. That's kind of what you're supposed to see is there's a difference here, something separate, and so it stands out for a reason. So we're going to look at a pattern in the book of Acts this morning. So in Acts chapter 2 is where we'll start out. We're going to establish the pattern. So this is going to begin in Pentecost for us. We're going to go over these four points in the pattern that we have up on the screen. The first one is that it's going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit with a miracle. Then someone's going to preach a sermon that convicts the hearers. Then the people are going to respond with mass repentance. And then the believers are going to gather together and live in peace. So let's work together through a couple of verses here to kind of see what the pattern looks like in the text. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, Now when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a violent wind blowing came from the heaven and filled the entire house where they were sitting. And the tongues spread out like a fire appeared on them and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Holy Spirit comes, Miracle of speaking in tongues. All right, let's go to the next part here. This is the convicting sermon. You can see there's, there's a big sermon. We're not going to read it all together today. You might remember it from two and a half years ago. So we will leave that, but we'll look at an example verse in verse 36 of the convicting element of the sermon. This is right at the end. It says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know that beyond a doubt that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. There is like an accusatory nature here, whom you crucified, right? Okay, lock that away in your head. This is a convicting sermon. Now let's look at what the response is. So in verse 37, just continue straight down. Now when they heard this, they were acutely distressed and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, 
What should we do, brothers? Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all of those far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this perverse generation. And the key in on this here, 41 says, So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added. So we see this mass repentance, 3,000 people at once coming to know Christ and committing themselves to him. And now we see the last part here of our pattern. We'll go to verse 44. All those who believed were together and held everything in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. And you can see the rest of the, the summary there. But they had all things together in common. Hone in on that phrase. It wouldn't be a pattern if it didn't repeat. Otherwise, it'd just be something that happened. So we're going to go and look at where it repeats in chapter 3. So turn with me over to chapter 3. We'll be starting in verse 2. Again, we're going to be looking for this pattern. And a man lame from birth was being carried up who was placed at the temple gate called the beautiful gate every day so that he could beg for money from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple courts, he asked them for money. And Peter looked directly at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. So the lame man paid attention to them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, stand up and walk. Then Peter took hold of him by the right hand, raised him up, and at once the man's feet and ankles were made strong. Holy Spirit miracle. Next step would be the sermon. In verse 13, we'll look for our convicting portion here of the sermon. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our forefathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate after he had decided to release him. But you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked that a man who was murdered be released to you. You killed the originator of life whom God raised from the dead. To this fact, we are all witnesses. You can see the parallel between these two sermons. Whom you crucified, the originator of life whom you killed. You can see these intentional parallels in this pattern continuing to establish. So then what should we expect to come after the sermon? Mass repentance. Okay, go to four chapter, so chapter 4, verse 4. So we're skipping a little bit ahead because there's a little bit of a hiccup in the operation because there's, there's an arrest that happens, but save that for a different sermon. 4.4 4 says, But many of those who had listened to the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Okay, so very similar language here. As we just heard about the 3,000, now it's num numbering up to 5,000. So now we're going to look for the last step of the believer's gathering together and living in peace. And this is going to be in verse 32 of chapter 4. It says, The group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but held everything in common. We've heard that phrase earlier. There is an intentional rhythm and pattern here that's been established. I know that was a lot of jumping around and reading. But we need to establish that before we get into how we depart from the pattern. This is the jarring part that's supposed to stand out, okay? 
So skip with me over to chapter 6. So now we've gotten a little bit past Peter at this point. Some things have happened in between what we last read and what we're reading now, including uh, the creation of the office of deacon. And so one of the deacons, Stephen, is going to kind of be at the center of what we're reading here. So in chapter 6, we will be starting in, we'll read a quick segment out of verse 8. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Okay, so we've got again, empowered by the Holy Spirit to perform miracles. Now, skip with me. We're going to go down to, uh, in the, towards the end of his sermons, we're going to go to chapter 752. And he's talking to his audience here, and he says, Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold long ago the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law by the decrees given by angels, but you did not obey it. Very convicting language again. Whom of the prophets did you not persecute? There is an accusation being made. Okay, so we know we've had this established. So we know that the next thing that's supposed to come is that the people would respond with repentance. Right. Some of you guys already beat me to the punchline, but that's not what happens here. Instead, the people respond with violence. Go with me into verse 57. But they covered their ears, shouting with a loud voice, and they rushed at him with one intent. When they had driven him out of the city, they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Store that away for later. They continued to stone Stephen while he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell to his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. Pretty significant departure from a bunch of people being baptized, raised into newness of life. Instead, we see Stephen being martyred entering into eternal life. This should stand out to us. The pieces were in place, so this should be jarring. And, and it is. Because then we see what the, instead of the church gathering together and having all things in common again, we see a scattering happen. We see people separated because of persecution. If we just read chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, it says, And Saul agreed completely with killing him. Now on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were forced to scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lament over him. But Saul was trying to destroy the church. Entering one house after another, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So this should be a bad thing, right? <laughs> This, this feels like a uh, kind of like an end-of-the-road moment. You have this really beautiful picture of heaven on earth in the church of Jerusalem. People are having everything together in common. They are serving one another, meeting one another's needs. They're devoting themselves to the preaching and the teaching of the word and, uh, and to prayer together and, and breaking bread. Like This is exactly what we should be looking forward to in heaven. All of that in worship of our Lord and Savior. And now that's been destroyed. 
and it would be bad news if the book of Acts was about building a church. But praise God that the book of Acts is not about building a church, but is about the advancing of the kingdom of God. I don't just say that flippantly. Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, bookends this section, this, this book of Acts. He bookends it with these two phrases. So in Acts 1, 1 through 3, it says, I wrote the former account, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after he had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. To the same apostle also, after his suffering, he presented himself alive with many convincing proofs. He was seen by them over a 40-day period and spoke about matters concerning the kingdom of God. Most important thing that Jesus could teach his disciples before he left, kingdom of God. Now fast forward all the way to the end. I told you we were going to do the whole book of Acts today. All the way to the end. This is in Acts 28. This is verses 30 through 31. It says, Paul lived there two whole years in his rented quarters and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming what the kingdom of God and preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with complete boldness and without restriction. So the most important thing that Paul could teach someone when they're coming to visit him when he's under house arrest is the kingdom of God. So should it not be the most important thing to us? Should we not be more concerned with advancing the kingdom than with advancing our local church? This is a huge conviction uh, in my heart that God really called out in me. Because as I've been at different churches serving in different capacities, I've been a youth pastor, a worship leader, an associate pastor, and in all of those, my temptation has always been, how can I... How can I make the most of this church? How can I make people in the community know this church? How can they come and see and hear at this church? And when we take that approach, it's really tempting to push all our brothers and sisters in Christ at other churches to the side and to be focused entirely on me, 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 me. And that's not what we see here. What we see following the martyrdom of Stephen is a total shift in church history at this point. And granted, church history was very short at this point. (laughs) But we see a total shift. That instead of let's gather everyone into one place, it's let's take this show on the road. If Acts had been about starting a church, then this this martyrdom of Stephen and the scattering of the church, we would have looked at that and, and had to say, okay, well, I guess the message of this story is, well, we once had a really good thing going and now we'll never have a really good thing going again. But because it's about the kingdom, the message is, no matter if you hunt us down and try to kill us, if you throw us in prison, we're never going to stop proclaiming the goodness of Jesus Christ who's changed our lives forever the freedom and the grace that we have as a result of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and resurrection. That's more important than anything you can do to us. It's more important than what you can do to our churches. It's more important than what you can do to whatever place we're meeting at at this point. The kingdom of God is first and foremost. So, what happens after this? You see, in the the chapter that follows in, in... Acts chapter 8, 
we see another deacon, Philip, who is basically, you're just getting a bullet point greatest hits list of Philip going and advancing the kingdom of God. First, he goes to Samaria, and he, this is where you see, uh, uh, this is where you see really fulfillment of the Great Commission begin, right? So the gospel goes from Judea to Samaria as the first step. And then we know Jesus then tells him to the ends of the earth, which we'll see in a second. But he goes from Judea to Samaria, right? Which was hugely controversial. We know that there's sort of racial and cultural tensions between Israelites and Samarians or Samaritans. And so there was, this was a huge gap to overcome for them. And he goes and he brings the gospel and they receive it. Then he's on the road and he comes across an Ethiopian eunuch and he shares about the kingdom of God with him. And you know where the gospel goes then? With, with the Ethiopian eunuch back to Ethiopia. <laughs> the ends of the earth, it's coming. And then we see Philip go from there. God kind of plucks him up and drops him. And all of a sudden now Philip is sharing from everywhere between, uh, everywhere from Azotus to Caesarea about the kingdom of God. In every city that he can find, he stops to share. He doesn't care that people are behind him, chasing him down and trying to throw him in prison. He's sharing the gospel as fast as he can to the point where Saul is having to chase after him all the way to Damascus, stopping in every town to try to arrest people along the way, and then Jesus gets a hold of Saul. And you just get to see the power of, of the kingdom of God and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in his people. And that there is no amount of scattering that can happen that is going to prevent God from advancing his kingdom. And I want to take you guys to a bit of a full circle moment. Turn with me to Acts chapter 11, and then we'll be done turning in our Bibles for today. There's a lot of narrative that happens between what we just read and this, but this is about the church in Antioch. So at this point, this is, a, this is not an uh, Israel city. We're, far, we're about 300 miles away from Jerusalem at this point. And uh, let's just read it. So we'll start in verse 19. Now those who had been scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one but Jews. But there were some men from Cyprus and Cyrene among them who came to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks too, proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. A report about them came to the attention of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. Because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. Remember that from our pattern. A significant number of people were brought to the Lord. Okay, wait a second. We're seeing a bit of a reestablishment of the pattern, right? So, we don't have explicit miracles here. I'll grant that. But we do have someone empowered by the Holy Spirit going, presumably preaching, and we're seeing many come to know the Lord. Verse 25, Then Barnabas departed from Tar for Tarshish and to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul 
met with the church and taught a significant number of people. Now, it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. So we see them gathering back together in Antioch. Cycle restored. Now, I want to highlight something very cool to you guys. So yes, we see this reinstatement of a pattern, but it even takes it a step further than that. So Antioch, 300 miles away, is absolutely blowing and going, and they are firing on all cylinders. Things are going great. Then they get word from a prophet, prophetic word, there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem. They're going to struggle to get food. And you know what Antioch does? They send food and relief down to Jerusalem. They have all things in common with the church who's 300 miles away because it's not about the castle that they're a part of. It's a part of the kingdom that they're a part of. This was, we're seeing exactly what was happening in Jerusalem originally all the way back in Acts 2 through 4. Now it's happening on a grander scale throughout the known world at this point. And that's what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. That's what it means for us to plant a church in Norman and to be partnered with a church in McKinney, Texas. That's three hours away. Is that we have all things in common because ultimately we have the thing at the center in common, which is Jesus Christ. We have freedom and salvation in Jesus. He's knit us together. He's adopted us into his family. And so now we are just as much brothers and sisters and united in that as I am, brother and sister with, or sister and brother, with my two siblings who live here in Texas as well. We still take care of each other. We still have all things in common as a family, even though we've got mileage separating us. It does not change the relationship. And the beautiful thing is we know that the day is coming when not only those who were separated from geographically will be brought together to worship God together again, but also those who are separated by history will come together. When Christ returns and brings a new, new creation, new heaven, new earth, we will all gather together and worship him in spirit and in truth. I don't know about you guys, but that gets me pretty fired up. I'm sure you can tell. What comes out of this church in Antioch is incredible. This is in this in this one like chapter and a half section about what it tells you about what Antioch's doing. Let me read you the highlights of what they're doing. We see them practicing discipleship and leadership development and disaster relief and church cooperation and evangelism and church planting. I would say that this is God's design for the church. That this is what he calls us to be. As local churches, as lowercase c churches, to be involved in these things. To place a priority on it. They send out, Antioch is the sending church for Paul and Barnabas. And they go out to take the gospel, span the kingdom again. And you can estimate around 14 churches planted out of that missionary journey. 14 churches planted out of Antioch that we know of on paper. And let me tell you, this is how God has orchestrated for us to continue advancing the kingdom is by churches planting churches. So I want to encourage you guys 
to take a step of faith as God leads, to step into this post-Stephen history of what church looks like, of going and planting churches for the sake of expanding the kingdom. And I want to give you a word of encouragement in that. The church that Alyssa and I come from, that is one of our sending churches, it's called Wallace Baptist Church, it's in Shawnee, Oklahoma, um, is a church that for the last six years has been about 75% college students. And I don't know if you know anything about college students, but what they don't have is money. And <laughs> so we as a church don't have money. And so we have done everything that we can to be great stewards of, of what God has given us, and we've been so blessed in the ministry we've been able to do. But when God called Alyssa and I to leave and go plant a church, our church was so on board and so excited to be part of that sending, but the first thing they said was, we have no money. <laughs> we can't plant a church. And this is not a big church either. They say, we can't send a plant team with you. If we lose 20 people to go plant a church, our church is going to close. We got bills to pay. And let me tell you, what God has done through this process has, has blown my mind. We have been able to go and be invited to talk at other churches, at other like church groups and associations, and, uh, and get to share about this mission that God has put on Alyssa and I's heart. And let me tell you, we have, gosh, I think we're up to eight different churches and organizations that are supporting us in one way or another at this point. Churches plant churches, but they don't have to plant churches alone. Because we are all after the same thing, which is kingdom advancement. So if you're sitting here today in a chair, and you're saying, hey, I know this church. We're not ready to plant a church. Let me encourage you by saying, you are ready to be a part of church planting. Because there's not a church in this world that is not in a position where they could be part of church planting. Whether that is supporting missionaries like you guys do, whether it's like supporting a church plant, whether it's partnering with a new church in town, helping them get connected in the community, reach neighborhoods. That's great because guess what? It's not us versus them, it's us versus Satan. <laughs> there's not a competition, it's a cooperation. We come together for the sake of the gospel. And we say, guess what? You want to open a church across the street from us? Great, because there's people in our neighborhood that we haven't been able to reach, but maybe you guys can reach them. God has given each local church a different identity. And that identity, that unique thumbprint, is there to reach people who need Jesus. And because we're all unique, God uses all of us to advance his kingdom. Let me close us out with this reflection and response time. I want to ask you guys to reflect in this way. As a church, in what ways is Crossroad building the kingdom of God? And in what ways are we giving into the temptation of building the castle? What ways are we building the kingdom? And in what ways are we building the castle? And then personally, reflect on this. Are you taking the gospel with you 
as you are going, as the Great Commission tells us? Are you taking the gospel as you are going? Has Jesus transformed your life in such a way that you want others to experience that transformation? If not, what's standing in your way? You need to diagnose that. Is it you feel like you have a lack of competence in, in what you know about the gospel and about scripture and so you're scared you're not going to have the right answer when someone asks you a question? Is it a lack of confidence? You just feel like, oh, I could never go do that. I don't have the boldness to go out and share the gospel. Or is it just that you don't know Jesus yet? Maybe you're in here today and you are not a Christian. You don't have a relationship with Jesus. And if that's the case, man, you could not be in a better place than in the church on Sunday. I want to encourage you that that is the first step. Just like all the people we read about today in the cycle, the first step is hearing a message that convicts. Let me tell you, there's not a person in here today that does not need Jesus. can't get there on your own. It's not about what you do. But it's about who you submit yourself to. Guys, let me close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this precious church family. Thank you for what they mean to me personally. Lord, and what they mean to this community. Lord, I thank you for the testimony of faithfulness coming out of Crossroad Christian Church. Lord, I just ask that even today you would stir in our hearts, that you would call us into even a deeper level of sacrifice and commitment in following you. Lord, that you would challenge us to step outside of what is comfortable, outside of the cushion and the padding, and into the battlefield. Lord, that we would be passionate about reaching the lost. Lord, and that it doesn't have to look like us going out and standing on a street corner and proclaiming the good news, although that's powerful. Lord, but that you would give us your eyes to see those who are already in our life who don't know you. That you would give us the competence and confidence to speak boldly and to share that transforming truth that Jesus is the way to life. The way to fulfillment and purpose and freedom and belonging and identity. And that, Lord, there's no other way by which men can be saved. In the name of Jesus Christ. It's in that mighty and powerful name that we pray.